Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters. Actually, once again, I am in Las Vegas, Nevada at the 2012 SHOT Show, though that's not where I'm broadcasting from. My hope is that tomorrow I'll be putting out a few little you know, interviews that are snipped together as an episode uh, while I'm out there. I'll have my recorder with me out there, and I'm going to go around to some booths all week long, and hopefully I'll be able to get some people on the horn for you about what's coming in the tactical launch enforcement military sectors out there uh, so that's that's hopefully what I'll be doing but I wanted to make sure there's no way I was going to be able to do a show every day while I'm out at SHOT Show I'm not there exhibiting or presenting I'm there to meet people co-mingle hang out you know uh, find out what's going on find out some of the new stuff and you know maybe book some long-term guests people that you know I'll meet out there that'll make guests to bring on for full episodes so while I'm gone I always hate when I leave to not leave you guys with shows so I pre-record some And uh, I was uh, helped out with this one by a guy named Dan Vamos. And uh, Dan is a uh, public school English teacher that's now working uh, and building a site in the do-it-yourself space, specifically focusing on increasing the value of your home so that either you get more out of your home while you live there or you can sell your home for more even in a tough market. He's here to talk to us about that today. Before I bring him on, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is Jeff Gleason, a.k.a. The Berkey Guy. Now, what are you going to get from The Berkey Guy? Berkey Water Filtration Systems. I mean, I know it's 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 really a big leap to think that, but he's known as the Berkey guy because guess what? You can get Berkeys from a lot of places. They have a lot of distributors. There's a lot of great companies that sell Berkeys. But Jeff actually specializes in Berkeys. He's one of their biggest distributors. He has a wonderful relationship with Berkey, and that means he can do a really great job of taking care of you and all his other customers. The total number of complaints that I've received about service from Jeff Gleason, the Berkey guy, since he started sponsoring this show three years ago from my audience is absolutely 100% zero. None in three years. And trust me, when somebody stubs a toe the wrong way out there because of how I run my program, I hear about it. That's solid performance. And Jeff takes care of all his customers, not just ours, but he really takes care of this community. You need water filtration as part of your survival plan. You really do. Berkey is a great product for that, and Jeff is the guy to go to. He's got some other great stuff. His website is Directive. 21.com. Check them out today if you don't already do business with them. If you do, remember when you need new uh, filters, if you are an MSB member, he'll throw in a free water bottle when you place orders over a hundred bucks. Next up, shelfreliance.com. Notice I said a shelf like stuff you put stuff on versus self-reliance like you, yourself, your person. That's because shelf-reliance uh, specializes in innovative food storage shelving systems that allow you to eat what you store and store what you eat on a constant rotating basis without even thinking about it. Extremely space efficient, extremely sturdy, uh, just awesome systems like the Harvest 72 that can store over a half a ton of food in, a, in an area that's about four foot by two foot by about six foot high. 
How awesome is that? That's amazing. Uh, check it out. I've got a video on it. You can find it on my YouTube channel. And if you want smaller systems, they have you know systems like the pantry and the cupboard and their consolidator system. And guess what? They go in your pantry and your cupboard. How how uh, ironic is that? They also have the Thrive brand of long-term storage food. Best long-term storage food as far as taste quality I've ever eaten. I mean, really, I store Mountain House. I store Providing Pantry. I've got a ton of Yoder's bacon, man. But when it comes to like stuff that you're just going to mix up and be able to eat in a time of crisis and you want it to taste good, you want the kids to shut up and eat, you know, Johnny, shut up and eat your green beans, they'll eat the stuff from Thrive. Trust me, it's good stuff. Next up, I want to remind you, you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Uh, those are the best ways to stay in touch with me. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you'll get exclusive content available only to members. You'll get $150 worth of free ebooks. You'll get discounts from uh, 32 different vendors. And you'll support the show at a whopping 18.3 cents an episode. And with that, I've got the housekeeping wrapped up. I want to go ahead and introduce our, our guest again. Uh, Dan Vamos is running a really awesome website called Homestead Dividends. And uh, he's joining us today. He also has a great podcast. Uh, he's out in Las Vegas, Nevada right now. He also has kind of a second home in Pennsylvania. He's working on and improving both of them. He's sharing everything that he's doing. Uh, he's got some great insights on how to really turn your home into a homestead, which, as you know, is something I'm very passionate about. Hey, Dan, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hi, Jack. Great to be here. Hey, folks, you want to tell folks a little bit about, you know, kind of your background and what you're doing now? Oh, absolutely. Okay, so uh, I was born and raised in western Pennsylvania, and uh, I've been teaching for about 17 years, and uh, my wife is a physician, and I've had to travel around the country with her, and that has kind of exposed us to many different things and buying a lot and fixing up a lot of different homes as we've traveled with her career. Uh, we're located right now in Las Vegas, Nevada, and um, we have a home that we're fixing up back in Pennsylvania, which is home for both of us. And um, so I have always been interested in uh, survival and do-it-yourself communities, and I thought there was a natural connection because who is more of a do-it-yourselfer than a homesteader? And homesteaders are definitely interested in home improvement. So I found a connection between the two, and that's really what my site is about, Homestead Dividends. Well, that's really cool, man. And uh, so I hear you mention like Vegas and Pennsylvania. And you're talking about adding value to a home and you're having to sell some of these homes as you move. But like the real estate market has been like really kind of sucking wind. But I mean, I, I personally found that when you do the right things to a house, you can still sell a house today. Has, has that been your experience? You know, it has. And the other thing uh, that I would say is when you're in a house, the best thing you can do, and I've mentioned this on uh, my podcast, and I've even given you a suggestion or two on uh, on our feedback, is, um, you know, make the most of your home and, and what it is. And if you're adding value to your home and you market it the right way, which we can talk about a little later, um, you know, you can definitely sell. And if you put stand yourself out in any market or stand out in any market, you have one leg up on your competition and your house is more prepared to sell than somebody else's. Well, hey, um, what are some of the uh, ways you can get the most out of your house or residence? Some of the, the biggest things that you can do. Well, you know, there are a lot of things to do, and there was a wonderful article that I posted that I stole from someone online. It talks about things to do and not to do on your house. First of all, let's cover some of the do's. Obviously, one of the most simple things is to just keep your house in really nice order, and I'm talking about from the landscaping in front. I'm talking about a fresh coat of paint. I'm talking about making sure that the carpets are clean or the floors are clean. I'm talking about uh, just making sure that everything is in good repair. 
And adding those little extras in your house, if you're at least bit handy, adding some molding or some trim work or finishing things off that aren't quite right, or if you have a broken tile in the bathroom, replacing it, and all those little things that when a home buyer comes and go, ah, I see that, ah, see that, ah, see that, and if you can get rid of all those ahas, you've gone from giving a buyer a reason not to buy your house to say, hey, this guy, they've taken such good care of their house. I know that there probably aren't a lot of surprises here because I can't find anything on the surface that's wrong. Yeah, I mean, I've always thought that, that the reason you do all this stuff, because like if I walk into a house and like a towel rack is loose or whatever, I'm not thinking, boy, that's going to be hard to fix. And I mean, geez, I'll never get a, the, the appraisal to come through so I can buy this house because that flipping towel rack. But what I am thinking is, okay, this person's trying to sell their house. They've done what they think is the best that they can do. They put their best foot forward. This is their best foot. So that tells me I'm dealing with a person, even if I'm not, my feeling is a buyer who doesn't really give a shit about stuff. And if somebody, if, if there's, if there's like a problem in the attic, they just hit it. You know, if there was a leak, they just, you know, put a pan in the roof or threw some schmutz on top of it or something. They're not the person that really takes the time to make sure things are maintained and fixes them right. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. And, you know, Jack, I wanted to share with you something that I shared with you before than you actually spoke about on your podcast, and that is a three-ring binder sales portfolio that you put on your kitchen counter or wherever it is when you have prospective clients in. Have all of your manuals in there from all of your appliances. Have all of the repair work bills and et cetera in there, and just show that you have every all your ducks in a row uh, and all the information on your house. And that sets you apart from the, many of the other sellers because when someone walks in your house and sees all of the paperwork on the house and all of the things that you've done and you have all the receipts from all the service people, they know that this person has really taken care of that house and that really sets you apart from the other people. Yeah, because you're probably not going to see that somewhere else. It, it, that spoke to me. I remember now. I was telling you, I know you from past communications when we were talking off air. Um, and that, that actually, I remember that exactly now. And I remember why that resonated with me. We sold the house north of Allentown, Pennsylvania. Uh, we had a real estate agent up there named Jane Schooley and she was absolutely amazing. And we did that plus what she did is she put together this book, um, who the internet service provider was, what the cable options were, the closest grocery store, the school, everything you could think of that the community had to offer was all in this book. And when a prospective buyer walked in, they could pick it up, and it wasn't a question, I wonder where the grocery store was. There's three main grocery stores in town. Here are the brand names. Here's how far they are. Here's where they're at. Here's the school that your kids will go to. Here's how they're rated. And I guess if your school sucks, maybe that's not. But it was a good school district at all. Our house sold in 72 hours. That's fantastic, and I think part of that is you were well positioned and well marketed, weren't you? We were. She was. She was absolutely a dynamite agent. So, I mean, I guess that's. Uh, do you usually sell your own home, or do you use an agent, or? You know, we usually use an agent um, with some of the smaller things like our uh, our homestead or bug out location back in Pennsylvania. We've kind of handled that purchase ourselves, and uh, we're getting more confident. But uh, because of my wife's career, sometimes we've had to move in a hurry and not necessarily have the ability to stay where the house is while it's sold. And we can't have relatives, you know, coming out, showing the house and whatever because we were away from where our families were. So it really was kind of prohibitive for us to kind of sell our own homes. 
Yeah, we were in that situation a few times myself where I was doing a lot of traveling with transition and that would have left my wife to do that alone. And I just flat out didn't feel comfortable with strangers coming to the house. Let me show you around and I'm not there to watch your back. That just didn't feel right to me. And I think that a good agent markets your house and earns their commission. And if you get a crappy agent, you need to get rid of them as quickly as you can. Absolutely. And, you know, Jack, going back to the three-ring binder, I was just going to add one thing, and that is I find it interesting that many people's houses never look better than the day they sold it. And one of the premises of my website and my blog is, wouldn't you like to live in that house? Because I noticed that some people, um, when they get the, you know, see these home improvement shows where the house is immaculate and they finally yeah. get it to sell, and they're like, well, I don't know if I want to sell it now. Yeah, Why don't you yeah. do that to your house, put that equity in, and live in a beautiful house and enjoy it? And that's part of what I want you to do. That's great that you have it in a position to sell, but why don't you enjoy that well-staged and you know efficient and clean and beautiful house for a while before you sell it? And then when it's time to sell, you don't have to do a lot because you've already done it and enjoyed it. Yeah, you know what? We really learned that when we... Uh, sold our place in Pennsylvania. And we actually did a lot of do-it-yourself work. We had a contractor do the stuff that we couldn't do. And we had brought the house a long way. But one thing we had held off on was doing the carpeting. And uh, when we were getting ready to sell it, we went and just put everywhere there wasn't wood floor or tile. We just had all the carpet redone, brand new. And that's exact. And then we cleared out all of the stuff that we really didn't need anymore. And when we, we did, we looked at that house and went, Oh my God, we never, and that was, that was like the last thing, but it made a huge impact. And then we decided like after that, like if we're living in a place and the carpet's not right, we're just doing it. And we're going to actually enjoy it instead of give it to somebody else. Jack, you deserve to have the best life in your own house. And it, it's frustrating to me that a well, lot of people you. hold off. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, you need to understand that you've deserved this. You've worked hard for this house. You're putting a mortgage or if you paid it out right, whatever. You've put a lot of work into getting that house. You should enjoy it to the maximum that you can. Yeah, I agree. You know, a long time ago, I did an episode called From Home to Homestead and said that the biggest problem that we have in America anymore is we don't have homesteaders. And I don't care if you live in the suburbs. To me, you can still be a homesteader. And the fundamental difference was that a home was a consumer and a homestead produces. So a homestead works for you. It provides for you. It's not just a roof and walls. It, it, it has an output. And it, it, so it really does work for the owner instead of the owner working for it. What are some of the things that you think we can do to get our homes to start working for us? Okay, uh, that's a great question, and uh, it goes along with, I think, uh, one of the definitions of homesteading that I use, which, and you just hit on a few of the things, which is changing uh, the, the model from a consumer to a producer. And one of the things, and, uh, you know, that I talk about is it starts for me, at least with me, with a garden. And if I could just share a small quote with you real fast, it kind of puts this all in perspective. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. It says, and this is from your homes, your garden homestead on inches, yards, and acres by Tom and Betty Powell. And it says, in America, garden homestead, the garden homestead movement is totally unmanaged, undirected by any group and without formal structure. It's a quiet revolution. Remember, the revolution is you. A peaceful one that originates with the individual. People all over the country are seeking a new kind of security based on personal autonomy. They start by growing as much of their own food as possible. Often they go on to build improved forms of shelter, test new energy systems, develop home businesses, and work cooperatively with their neighbors. To the greatest extent they can, they provide for their own needs, become producers instead of consumers, and in so doing, find great satisfaction and personal growth. 
And that is something that I completely believe in. And I think that many of the things that we talk about in our shows, um, most people start off with a garden. And, you know, you said it a long time ago, Jack, that a garden, uh, planting a garden is a revolutionary act. And I yes. think that's where the revolution starts. And as I've, I, as this definition went along, then we then we add on you know forms of shelter, testing energy systems, developing your own business, and um, you know going from a consumer to a producer. Uh, but it all starts for me with a garden or in, an orchard or both. I completely agree with that, and I think that I mean I, I, I say it all the time, but I'll say it again. There's one thing that we know we're going to do several times a day, every day, from the time people stop shoving a bottle in our mouth until people start shoving a bottle in our mouth again. I guess is we're going to eat and we're going to feed ourselves, and if we can't do that, nothing else matters. It's 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 the uh, it's the root of all health. It's the root of all survival. It's the root of all life. So it makes perfect sense to me that we would start with food production. And not only is it just good to have your own food, but you know what? The quality of the food is better when you grow it yourself. You know what you're putting in the ground, and I don't know of many people that garden that intentionally want to poison themselves. They want to use the least invasive methods to grow their food and have the healthiest, most delicious and flavorful food they can, the freshest. You know, I have food right outside my garden, outside my door right now in my garden, and I can walk right outside my door, two steps, grab a radish, come back in, and I know exactly where that's been, and I'm much more comfortable eating that than something out of a package from Guatemala or God knows where. You know, and I think, like, when I sold my place in Arlington, now, see, selling my house is 72 hours in Pennsylvania – wasn't that big a deal. The market was really good back then. When I had to sell my house in Arlington I, for a year, right, I had people emailing me go, dude, how are you going to sell that house? You know, like it was just like it was an impossibility because I was very public. As a long-time listener, you know about what I was going to do. And people couldn't believe that my plan was actually to sell a house in 2011. And I'm like, don't worry about it. So we sold that house also in 72 hours. It took like a month and a half with all the – new complexities because of mortgages for the buyer to be able to actually close the deal. But we had the offer in three days. And I firmly believe that the gardening and permaculture things that I had done to the yard were not the only thing, but they were part of what set the house apart from other things. So I think that done properly, that's even something to look at for the resale market as well. And um, one thing I would I would add is, and this is one of my first podcasts I said, and um, I, I use the word permafood, not to be confused with permaculture, uh, but but perennial foods that you can use, plant in the garden, and get started. Sure. I remember an old story from my brother who started out as a bricklayer working for this little old guy down the road, and if my brother was standing around watching, we'd say, do something, even if it's wrong. The act yeah. of planting your garden and starting and learning is better than you know, studying a thousand books and, you know, paralysis by analysis, doing nothing. Get yeah. those things in the ground. You can, you know, these people that order fruit trees, oh, my God, I'm not sure exactly what zone it's in or whatever. Oh, in the ground now, it's three feet tall. It, you're, you can move a tree, okay? The yeah. trees that are coming in the mail that you're ordering or you get from Home Depot are not 40-foot mature trees. Yeah. Get them yeah. in the ground, and you're going to have time to move them, and they're not going to die. Yeah, they're going to be just fine. So don't freak out. Get those things in the ground that you want and start growing them. You can move them as you figure it out. 
You know, I, I love permaculture and the design science that goes behind it. I'm not saying that had my grandparents not known about it, if it had existed back in the 20s and 30s and 40s when they were building up their homestead, that they might not have done a better job. But they had gooseberries and currants and raspberries and blackberries and grapes and walnut trees and apple trees all over their, you know, about two acre spread. And we ate that stuff. We used it all the time. And they did exactly what you said. They didn't think about, well, you know, they might have thought a little bit about shade and, and whatnot. But basically, they went out, they dug a hole, they stuck a plant in it, and then they watered it until it established itself. And they said, you're on your own, produce for me. And it worked out just fine. And over time, you will learn what things grow in what areas. And now you have a track record because you can read all the books you want. But until it goes in the ground and deals with the specifics you may or may not know about in your soil, you're still kind of shooting blind here. So get it in the ground, see how it reacts. If you need to move it, move it, but don't fear planting. I'd rather you get started. It's going to take you years for those fruit trees to produce. You're not going to kill a two-foot-tall fruit tree or three-foot-tall fruit tree moving it around until you find the right spot for it. No, you're not. You're absolutely not. You're maybe certain times of the year you don't want to do it. Right. But, um, but, yeah, in general, a lot of the trees that we buy are actually grown in ground. At nursery locations, and then when it's big enough to sell, they dig it up and stick it in a pot and send it to you. So it's not like it's not done. Um, let's move on to some stuff that's a little bit more, like let's say, hardware based. One thing I haven't had to worry about for a very long time because down here in the south where we get tornadoes, for some reason nobody builds a freaking house with a basement. It was just something I'm very disgusted about because I would love to have a basement. But when we had one in Pennsylvania at my grandparents' place, we had some pumps and backup generators because if you end up with power out during a rainstorm, you can end up with a flooded basement and all the stuff you're storing down there could be damaged. And I've noticed on your site, like you have some tips on like waterproofing a basement. So, what are some things we can do to make the basements more watertight? Okay, and um, you know, basements to me are a lot like a boat or an RV. They're the greatest thing in the world, and at certain times, they're the worst thing in the world, and an albatross <laughs> around your neck. So, you know, they are great to have. They're wonderful for storage. And those of you that haven't ever had a basement or don't have one now, I mean, the storage and just taking your utilities, your washer and your dryer, and having them out of the way down the, you know, down the stairs, it's wonderful. But when they flood, they are an absolute disaster. And a couple of the things that I really recommend doing, one of them is, my friend for small leaks, is a product called a hydraulic cement. And you mix it up in like a little cake batter and you smear it onto an area, wet or dry, and it'll actually expand as it dries. And uh, we took our, our home back in Pennsylvania, which has a basement and was incredibly leaky and without a sub pump. Uh, we have the basement completely dry without a sub pump in uh, because of the use of hydraulic cement and glass block windows. Wow. And that's that's what you did. I mean, that's the whole thing. That's pretty much it. Now, um With the glass block windows, before uh, they were there, the opening was beating up old pieces of uh, wood window that were falling apart and decaying. You know that kind of old house window that you yep. say, my God, this thing's going to fall over and slice somebody? <laughs> I tore those out. And I'm kind of lucky that my brother, being a mason, um, taught me how to lay glass block because his business was in Miami where glass block panels are the thing to do. Sure. And so he taught me how to install them. And the first thing I did is the sill or the area, the bottom of the area, the concrete block, most most um, basements are concrete block. Um, the first thing you want to do is fill those cells or that void to produce a waterproof area because if water is already coming through that area, you're not doing any damage. You're actually greatly improving the area by pouring concrete down in that area, the cells in the concrete block. So I fill that area off, let it dry, and then I come back with white masonry cement, which is a waterproof cement, 
And then you can go to any Home Depot or big box store, and they sell glass block panels already put together for you. So you don't have to have the, you know, the bricklaying skills. And they're usually put together with silicone in between the individual glass blocks. You install it as a panel and seal in around it with more white masonry cement. And then over, when it dries, I go back with a bead of white silicone sure. to waterproof it. And um, we have absolutely had no problems. And on my site, I show that not only is there glass block panels, but for those of you that vent out through your basement, they have different models. One, that you can put your dryer vent um, through the glass block, and there's a special panel added to it for a vent. There's one that has a window for you know getting fresh air down in your basement. Uh, and then there's this traditional, just standard glass-on-glass, glass block panel that's just you know one solid wall of glass. Basically just serving the purpose of allowing light in and keeping everything else out. And man, is, does it give a lot more light than those dingy old windows that we had in there that really had no insulating value. And here's the other thing. Those glass blocks are um, airtight, and they are, you talk about an insulated piece of glass. When you have a four-inch wide piece of glass that's insulated and a vacuum, I mean, it, the, the heat resist, the R value is much higher than a regular pane of glass. Oh, yeah, just the amount of air that's held in between the blocks is, is a massive amount of insulation. I know, like, one of the big things that I miss about having a basement was that, like, we used to make homemade wine. We'll still do, but, I mean, we used to make a lot of it, and it was a great place to store it. Cheese, garlic, onions, anything like that down in our basement. I mean, the storage life was huge, and, and I really do wish there were more homes with basements in the South. And, I mean, not, not you know, it also drives me crazy. Every every spring when the tornadoes start up down here, they're like, go to the basement of your home. And there's not a house here with a basement. So there's a lot of advantages there as long as you can take care of them. Jack, let's be honest. The real reason you want a basement is the same reason I do. It's a man cave. It is a man cave. It is. <laughs> you a know, man you cave. put a pool table down there or a TV or you can have your tools and you can make it a mess and you just have the delineation at the door going up the stairs. That's your part of the house, hon, and this is mine. Fine, and I stay can, out. <laughs> you know, um, and, it's, it, and it's just great having a place you can keep your tools in the house and work on projects that aren't freezing cold in the winter in climates where you do have basements. And one other thing about a basement that I wanted to add if you want to dry it out, uh, one of the best things I can think of is having a wood-burning stove. You're taking all that humidity. I mean, what is a greater dehumidifier than a wood or a pellet burning or some kind of a uh, open flame, you know, source or a heating source to get that humidity out of that basement? So that's another element that I don't have right now in my house, but I strongly recommend to my listeners. Yeah, we actually had a, uh, it was like a half basement, I guess you would call it, a split-level house that we had in uh, Pennsylvania. And there was a wood stove downstairs, and there was a vent in the floor that was just basically a vent up into the dining room. And uh, it didn't really do anything except just sit there and allow some air passage. And if you had heat going on downstairs, the heat would come up and heat the upper portions of the house as well. It was pretty cool. It's amazing how just a simple heat source can really help your house, and especially in an emergency, you know, when... uh when you, you don't have the, you know, regular systems of support, having that backup heat source is just, I mean, you can't put a price on it. Sure. So you're big in the DIY space, you know, people doing stuff for themselves, figuring it out, making it happen. You know, the way that our, you know, my grandfather, if you gave him some paneling and some nails, he's going to fix anything. Uh, as before duct tape existed. I don't know how they lived back then, but that was the <laughs> mentality that, that that generation had. Um, so today people are kind of coming back into it, and when you don't have the experience, maybe you make some mistakes. So in your experience, what are some big mistakes you've seen people make when they're working on their house? 
Okay. One that, that's, that's, that's maybe a small mistake, but I, I think it's kind of funny and it kind of ties in with your carpeting story. One thing that people do in their houses is they'll renovate a house and then they'll tear up the carpeting or the old floor. Then they'll put in a new flooring and then they'll paint the walls. And then they have to cover over everything and God forbid you get paint or do any additional work in that room and you've uh, damaged your new carpet or your new floor. The last thing you should be taking out of the room is the carpeting or the old floor. It's a natural drop cloth that you don't need to worry about. And it's one of the biggest mistakes that I think people make is because you've just opened yourself up to a huge liability with that beautiful carpet that you've laid or that new floor and then you immediately cover it over. And having worked construction, you know, I always was amazed at people that are covering over these beautiful floors and they say, you know, be careful. This is a brand new, you know, hardwood floor, and we're, you know, we're doing work in there. That should be the last thing that goes. So that's that's probably one of the big things. Man, I always I, find I, it funny, and that's one we never did. We, I, I'll admit when we've done some dumb stuff, but if we were going to paint a, a room, we always left the flooring to last. It just makes sense. Or drywalling, or doing any kind of construction, or any kind of work in there. It, sure. It's just it's a natural drop cloth, and that's something that you can uh, you can definitely do. Um, some of the other mistakes that I think that, that people make is, one, they definitely get it over their head. If you are not qualified to mess around with 220 electric, and let me tell you what, 220 electric for people that don't know, those are the big appliances like your dryer, if you have an electric dryer or an electric range, that will kill you. Don't even mess with 220 unless you are, you can do 110 work, which is your regular outlets, blindfolded. You're gonna get yourself hurt, possibly killed, or do a lot of damage to your house. There are certain areas where I do not recommend, unless you have a lot of uh, experience on it and a lot of confidence, you just don't mess with. 220 electric is one. If you want to play around with a light switch and add a light or a lamp, you know, turn off the breaker at the panel, um, and you're going to be fine. But 220 is something that is dangerous to work with, and unless you really know what you're doing, one mistake could be your last. So that's one of the, the huge things I say. And the other one is plumbing. Unless you really know what you're doing with plumbing, stay away from the pressure side. Now, if you want to work on the trap or the drain side that's not pressurized, that's a great place to start if you you need to fix a drain or something like that. But on the on the other side, if you don't know what flux is, you have no business <laughs> messing with copper pipe. You're going yeah. to have a big mistake, and that that plumber who goes in to fix your mistake, when he sees that water shooting out, your price tag of your bill just doubled. Yeah, I remember this old like poster or something that had they said labor rates on it. You know, like the base labor rate was $20 an hour. And then it was like $30 an hour if you watch me do it. And then the most expensive one was like $100 an hour if you worked on it first and then brought it here to me to fix it. Yeah. You know, yeah. you can do a lot of damage on your own house if you don't know what you're doing. But at the same time, there are ways to do things and learn. And, you know, those do-it-yourself books that you get, a lot of them are really helpful. But once again, most of them are broken down into levels of ability. Start off with the basics and the simple things. Changing out, you know, switches and things like that or, you know, making a stud and, you know, working on some drywall and some small things that if you make a mistake, it's probably not going to be the end of the world. Um, I also recommend working in areas where people aren't going to see right away. So don't start your home improvement career in your entryway and in your formal sitting room. Okay, you probably want to start off in places like a bedroom or a uh, private bathroom that the visitors aren't going to see um, or in, you know, areas like garages and things and, and work your skill set up and build up some confidence and some talent. Don't start in the most obvious place and decide that you're going to make the uh, Sistine Chapel. Okay, that's a bad way to start and you're only going to get frustrated and you're going to uh, shoot whatever confidence you do have and walk away frustrated and demoralized. 
Yeah, and I, you know, you're making me think of one thing that I have an absolute passionate hatred for, and I think people should avoid it at all costs. And I always hate when I'm looking at a house that I want to buy and it's been done, and that is wallpaper. Every piece of wallpaper I look at makes me want to punch somebody in the face. I, I, I just, if you paint a room, I don't care if you paint it red, and you don't like that color, you're two coats of paint away from the room looking however you want it to look. When you're dealing with wallpaper, it is a flipping nightmare. And to me, even if I liked wallpaper, I wouldn't put it in if I was ever going to think about selling that house because I might sell it to somebody like me who walks in and goes, God, I don't want to do this. And you know what? We did the same thing. Well, actually, our house in PA that we're working on, it had five layers of wallpaper. It was from the house was built in the 1930s, and they just when they didn't like a color of wallpaper, they just put Put another one on top, baby. I'll tell you what, though. I could have put a hammer into that wall, and I probably would, it probably would have bounced off with all those layers of support on there. Yeah, yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about from that area. You know, I, I, I grew up in uh, eastern Pennsylvania, and we, we moved back there for a few years uh, a few years back. And um, we looked at one old farmhouse, and it was like, you know, you could tell us like old lady wallpaper, and like the house smells like old lady perfume. Yeah. And we're looking at the wallpaper, and I was like, I pulled a pocket knife out, and I stuck it into the wall. And I swear to God, it went in almost a half of an inch before it hit the actual wall. Oh yeah, and that's when your wife and you look at each other and you go, "No flipping way." We're not no, we weren't. This. That house was a money. What that house actually needed was dynamite and a bulldozer and a new house, and we didn't buy that place. It was a really pretty piece of land, but the house was it was just too far gone. I mean, so I mean, do you run things like that too when you're looking at older homes, like you know, knob and tube wiring and things like that, where people maybe don't realize there's major upgrades required to make the place safe. Right, and uh, that's why I think it's real important if you really don't know what you're doing and you're buying a fixer-upper that you don't get a complete rebuild fixer-upper. You want something that's relatively modernized, maybe the family stuck in the 70s or the 80s, you know, that's okay. But, you know, if you don't know what you're doing, getting a, you know, turn-of-the-century farmhouse is probably in over your head and above your pay grade and probably not a good idea. Now, with wallpaper... Um, it's a lot of work, and I can't recommend to people enough. If you're thinking about selling your house, as you mentioned, do not wallpaper the heck out of that house because if you watch these DIY shows on TV, you just see those people walking in those homes that are wallpapered out the yin-yang. They go, oh, my God, there's no way I'm doing this. And the way to get wallpaper off efficiently or effectively is a very time-consuming process. There's a thing called a Wagner power steamer, and essentially it's a big paddle that's concave, steam goes through the paddle, you stick the paddle on the well, it's about 6 by 12 inches, and you, you steam that area, and it becomes soft, and then you move over, and it's a repetitive process that will take you literally two or three days to do an entire room as you sweat the glue out, and then go behind with a scraper and scrape it all off. But Oh, but that's only the beginning. Then there's that remnant glue and all that other stuff you have to get down off the walls in prepping for a paint job. And, of course, because it's wallpaper, you've probably done some damage to the walls. So guess what comes next, okay? Either drywall repair or heavy-duty spackling. And, I mean, you're talking about a lot of work. Yeah, I agree. Now, one thing we did to cheat at our place in in, uh, Texas, and we hired a contractor to do this so this would look right. They came in and they sprayed texture right on top of the wallpaper, and they painted over it. And you would never have known there was wallpaper under there. Uh, if I was going to live in that house for 50 years, I probably wouldn't have done that. But given I knew I was going to hand that house off within five years, that was a quick, simple solution. And it worked. And, uh, I mean, we, we were there for five years, and it looked just as good the day we left as the day uh, we had it done. 
Let's just leave it at this, Jack. Uh, texture paint is a lot like perfume or cologne. It hides a multitude of sins. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, so another thing I wanted to talk to you about is, because I always ask people to submit some questions, and you have one here that I think is really, really interesting. It makes me think how valuable, I have two pickup trucks, and how valuable, valuable they've been to me with landscaping, with projects, with just, you know, the other day we just bought a whole bunch of shelving to go in a new shed we put up and some uh, Rubbermaid containers and all, and it would not have fit in a car. But you have a question you wanted me to ask. How do I have a pickup truck without owning one? I'd, I'd like to hear the answer to that. Sure. And, um, you know, there are a lot of people that need a pickup truck about three or four times a year. And other than that, it really doesn't fit their lifestyle. And the thing that I recommend people do is they have at some of these uh, big box stores and then also at a place that I like to uh, uh, check out for these kinds of things called Harbor Freight, um, they have wagons. And if you have a towing kit on your vehicle – uh, you can have this storable uh, a wagon uh, that you can build yourself. You can either have the pre-built ones that are for a little bit more money or for literally 400 bucks and a couple pieces of plywood because they give you the metal frame and the towing kit, and you just add on a floor and some sides. You can have your own essentially you know, truck that's your wagon that you put on the back, and they make them in sizes you know, 4 by 8, which holds a standard sheet of plywood. You don't need much more than that. And you use it a few times, you can fold it up and it goes in your garage or around the side of the house or you lean it up against the back where no one can see. And you have access to that wonderful truck or that towing capacity. But, you know, if you're the kind of person that you're more of a minivan mom or an SUV person and truck otherwise doesn't fit your life other than those two or three times or four times a year, I really think that's a great way to save a ton of money. Yeah, you know what? That makes a lot of sense. My father-in-law actually did that. He had a Malibu. Right, and not an right. old one, like a new compact, you know, mid-sized car Chevy Malibu. And he went out and got a little trailer with some side side rails on it. And anytime he needed stuff, he would go down and you know, Home Depot, Lowe's were like his two favorite places to be. And you know, they'd even load his stuff up for him. There's no way that guy needed to be driving a pickup truck though. Absolutely not. But just the one caveat is, if you're going to do this, okay, you don't want to buy. Okay, huge pallet of concrete block and stick it on your Malibu because oh. even though it's rated to carry, it's not rated to carry a house. <laughs> so you need to be careful because otherwise you're going to be picking your transmission up at the next stoplight. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you need to be reasonable what your expectations are of what you're going to carry and also check your tongue load because, you know, you need to make sure that you're not going to damage your vehicle. But if you do it right, and for most people we're talking about a couple cubic yards of peat moss or a piece of furniture and, you know, a couple of odds and ends and a couple of pieces of block here or there, a wagon is a perfect fit for someone to save a lot of money uh, from rentals or buying a truck when, you know, a truck doesn't really fit your lifestyle. Now, I'm a big truck lover, but I don't have one right now. I use the back of my Suburban, which... Luckily, it's four by eight, so it covers and, and does most of the things that I need. But we're still looking at putting a wagon on uh, for the messy stuff because you know yeah. what? I don't want to. I don't want to carry manure in the back of my suburban. Absolutely, I, mean, I was just thinking. I go down to our compost facility every time I have a project, and I'll load up a good cubic yard of uh, compost, not throwing the back of my F three fifty. I don't give a damn how dirty that gets back there. But if I was driving a suburban or an Explorer or something, and and I, I see people come down there, and they what they're doing is they'll get a bunch of containers like buckets or or bags or stuff, and they fill them all up, and then they pack them in the bag, and that's a lot of flipping work compared to back up and toss and. The type of trailer you're talking about would be no problem at all to get in and out of that facility. So, yeah, I'm like you. I love trucks. I'll probably own a truck till the day I die. But I also understand sometimes they don't fit certain people's lives. 
And not only that, but I know that there are certain people right now that maybe want a truck, but financially now is not the right time given this economy. You want to hold on to your vehicles as long as you possibly can. Sure. And um, if you're not ready for that transition, you know, 400 bucks for a wagon, that's maybe one or two car payments you know, for the average person, as opposed to, you know, five or six or seven years of car payments on a truck when you're only going to really use its capabilities a few times a year. I mean, I'd rather eat $400 than twenty-five dollars or $40,000 on a truck when it really doesn't fit my lifestyle or I just can't afford it right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can even do what you're talking about. They have these little trailers down at, like, Tractor Supply mm-hmm. that sell for five, 600 bucks. And really, and they have these old rails where you can just build side rails up on them if you want to. They're not expensive, so it's it's a great affordable solution. On the money thing, though, man, um, we were talking, and I understand what you know your vacation slash retirement home. You actually cashed in one of your retirement accounts so that you could make that purchase. Why'd you do that? And do you think it was a good investment? I think it was a wonderful investment, and here's why. Um, I had. Uh as a teacher, and, and with, I mentioned my wife's career, I've had to bounce around. And so before we uh, married, I was living in northern Virginia, and I had uh, some money put aside, quite a, a nice little nest egg for myself. And um, as we'd moved around and settled here, uh, I, I had that, and I was at the time where I needed to move it because of some things that were going on. And um, I made a decision that I've wanted all my life to have a vacation-slash-bug-out retirement home. And I'm in a position now where we, this deal just came up out of the blue, um, and the house was in a condition that it wouldn't really qualify for a conventional loan because it needed so much work. I knew I could handle the work with some help from a couple subs and whatnot, and it was it, so it was kind of like the market was in such a way that I could buy this house. No one else, everyone else is pretty much prohibited to do so because they don't have the money to get it. But with just a little bit of elbow grease, I can probably double the value of this house with a little bit of work in it. And, um, you know, I don't regret it, Jack, because the, this is right around the time when the, the markets have taken quite a bit of a dive and with the penalties and whatnot that I, I incurred, I, with the, the, the correction in the market, I still came up probably even to maybe slightly ahead of what the Standard & Poor's was doing at that time. So I don't feel like it was a great loss. And then no. the other thing was, is I, you know, there are people that wait until they're 60 or 70 to have that vacation home or whatever. Oh, you know, yeah. I have that, I have that now, and I don't want you to think that this is kind of like I'm being a me person, but I have something that I can work on now, and that is my hobby and my wife's hobby, and it's a hobby that we feel in the long run is going to be financially advantageous for us. So it hasn't been a money pit, it's been an investment for us, a different vehicle for us, and it's a place for us to spend time with our families, our daughter can see her grandparents, and there are just so many other things that, um, she lives in the, you know, my daughter lives in the desert, she doesn't know what real grass is, and doesn't know what you know waterfalls and creeks are. So having the ability to go back there and have the normal or what I call the normal childhood that I had, I mean, I can't put a price on that. Maybe this was a wrong choice in some people's eyes. I've seen it nothing but a blessing and an absolute home run. No, I completely agree with you. And I, and I don't think it's a me thing so much as it's a common sense thing. We've been sold this dream of retirement that I consider to be complete, total bullshit. They keep raising the bar on the age of what it's supposed to be. People work until their best years are behind them, and then this golden age of retirement ends up being sitting around and not knowing what to do with yourself, 
where what I always like to advocate, and it seems like you're doing as well, is this very long transition into true retirement. So by, so as you're doing less and less of the mainstream's version of what working life is, you're doing more and more of what you actually think makes sense for you. And when you're retired, you're still having a function. Instead of just being this old man or old woman that doesn't know what the hell to do with themselves and don't really feel, I mean, come on, 80 year olds don't like to take hikes up mountains. A few do, but very few. And there's a good chance any of us may not see 80. So doing it now to me makes a hell of a lot more sense. And what's funny is when we were redesigning the and working on our, our house and, and really starting to lay out what we wanted to do with it, I had people look at me crazy because there was a one, uh, one part of the house um, it, on the on the first floor was kind of like a living sitting room, but it was kind of semi enclosed. I said, I want that enclosed, and we're going to make that a bedroom. And at first, my wife kind of looked at me like, Are you crazy? I said, If we are going to retire here, how nice would it be to have a first floor bedroom? And how marketable would it be to have a first floor bedroom, a master uh, that we can just walk right in and walk right out of? And if we have kids or grandkids, they can go up the stairs and they can be up there. But we're going to take all that pressure off of our joints. And I just think it's going to be a much more marketable. Uh, you know, room than just having another living room or sitting area. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And uh, I think it's really cool some of the stuff you've been doing. I mean, what, what do you do? You think there's more and more of this going on? I mean, back right before the, the crash came, I, I was saying that I thought the home improvement sector was going to go into a, a kind of a boom. Because people have to stay in their homes. If you have to stay in your home, you don't, you, you, you make the best of what you have. So you start learning how to do this DIY stuff. I'm seeing more and more TV shows about this. Uh, you know, there was always some, but now it's like, there's like 20 or 30 different ones on, you know, Bathtastic, all these different shows that are on. Do you think the recession actually is driving that sector? It is, and I think there's a switch. I think there's been a paradigm shift. I think at first it was people flipping, and now it's people gripping. Before it was people flipping homes, trying to make a fast buck, and blah, blah, blah. Or at least there was a, a large contingent of that. That market has dried up for the most part because home values are either stagnant or declining. But those people that are gripping are come to term, coming to terms with their situation and making the best of it and uh, maximizing their potential, those are the people that are in the stores fighting to keep that home, uh, improving it, uh, getting the best they can out of that house. Those are the people that are driving the renovations now because the, you know, the, the fast buck guys, um, they're either sitting on the sidelines or they're probably taking a bath right now because I don't see that this is a great market to be flipping and doing that, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, it was making me think, it was weird how I, my mind is weird. It thinks of things that seem totally unrelated, but we just had Christmas. And like the thing I do every Christmas is that movie that comes on all day long, that A Christmas Story. I love to watch that movie. You know, little Ralphie and his BB gun and all. And You'll shoot your eye out, kid. You'll shoot your eye out, kid. Well, the old man, right, fights the furnace. He can change a fuse in three seconds. He, you know, he, when he gets a flat tire, he envisions himself on the track in NASCAR. And I think that like that generation, that was like there was a pride of ownership in a home. A home was not an investment in the way that we think of it today. It was your home, for God's sakes, and they wanted to pay it off as quickly as they could. And they, it, when something broke, you know, you don't call a guy for that. You fix it. And if I don't know how to fix it, before I call a guy, I call a buddy. And if the buddy doesn't know how, then I'll call a guy. And I think we're seeing a return to that. Not only are we seeing a return to it, but I think it's a 
it's a necessary return because I think with the economy and everything like that, I don't think we have the – a lot of people don't have the resources to just – like when the economy was great, oh, well, I'll just let someone handle that or, oh, I'll just let people do that. Now it's – I'm going to fix this myself because you know what? Money's tight, and I'm going to learn how to do this doggone it, and that's how it's going to be. And um, if I can just put in a plug for the men out there, if you want your wife to be even more attracted to you than you are now, start getting good with your hands, and she will be very impressed with you that you can do things around the house. Um, I, I have found that many people tell me, you know, my wife is so impressed with me that I can do things that I couldn't do. And I, th- and maybe it's sexist or biased, but I know that there are women that, you know, have a lot higher respect for men that can work with their hands and do those things around the house, as opposed to the guy that wants his first, you know, reaction is to pick, call up and have someone do the work for him. Yeah, you know, what works for me is none of that, man. It's when I do the laundry. That's what my wife like. <laughs> I, she gets that. That's, if I want to get on her good side, do the laundry and the dishes. You know, I can I can tinker with stuff and 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 sweat and work hard in the yard, and I can fix stuff around the house, and that's nice. But if I do the dishes or the laundry, uh, she says she puts it on the calendar when I do it because it's so infrequent. Well, then you do the dishes, baby. You do the dishes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, like I said, it doesn't happen a lot, but. Um, you know what's funny is this morning actually uh, it was Good Morning America Today Show one of the whatever she puts on in the morning had a show on about the return of the multi generational home and how a lot of the homes because there is still believe it or not there's actually people still building houses um, and there are still new homes being built but a lot of them are being built with a completely separated area with its own unique entry point its own little mini kitchen and all so that grandma or maybe grandma and grandpa can move in. But yet everybody still has their own space. So I think maybe one of the things people need to be thinking about long term with investment properties today is I think that trend will continue. And even if you're buying a home that doesn't have that, can it be added on or can you put like a little in-law cottage in or something like that? I think there's a tremendous potential for that to have real value going forward. And part of this is I like a lot of this. Like people say it's because of the recession, but I think it's something that we need. I think it was Pretty, I think part of the problem was families living miles apart with that, without that connection. People looking at the home as nothing but a temporary asset that I'm going to flip and get a new one. And like, see, like even when there's bad things, good things come out of it. And this return to value in family to me is actually a very, very positive thing. And um, Jack, you know that we have a thing out here that uh, people in other parts of the country may not be familiar with, and that's called a casita which is kind of like a little house that's, that's detached from the main house. And many of them are, are efficiencies or one-bedroom little apartments. And that's really an awesome little model that uh, that works out here. Now, back east, people can do apartments, or I've seen people where the basement is its own little efficiency. It's kind of Absolutely. a couple-step walk-down, whatever. But I think that's a really wonderful model. And one thing about a casita or one of those little semi-detached areas is you can use them now. What a great place for you to have the guys over and smoke cigars and play, you know, poker. And not yell at Right, and you can make a mess, and then you can clean it up later, and you can smoke up that part of the house, and it's not going to stink. Yeah. And you've got your own little place, or when your your kid turns, you know, 16 or 17 or 18, and she wants to, you know, you want to step them down to a little bit more independence, but you are still got your eye on them, or, you know, maybe they're going to go to tech school or trade school or community college or college, and they want to stay at home. Um, they've got some privacy, and you've got some peace of mind, but at the same time, you can keep an eye on them and kind of protect them a little bit, and, you know, you kind of know where they are, and, and, you know, you can keep an eye on them. 
And I think that provides something that's sorely missing today, kind of a transitional environment. Instead of going from, you know, complete dependence to complete independence, there's a transitional state, and it's more comfortable for everybody. Um, on a kind of a different note, we were, my wife and I were just talking about that last night and how there's a big need for that out there, but, you know, in, in kind of a different state. But that's, that's really cool. And I, I do think it's something to look at. The other thing I've seen done, and this is a lot more the homes in like the Northeast, a lot of them have the big detached garages with kind of an attic over the garage. And I've seen a lot of those turned into in-law suites or efficiency apartments or things like that. So I think it's very different depending on the region, but there's usually a way to make it happen. Unfortunately, the, the mayhem in suburbia, if you look at the average suburban uh, home that was built in the last 20 to 30 years, you can see that at, the, at the, that entire segment, no thought at all was given to something like that. The houses just aren't built. For, even the 5,000 square feet, you could have three sectioned off areas. There's none. It's all built this flow-through environment. Well, Jack, obviously you're missing the big point, and that is um, that in the, in suburbia, your grandparents, your parents, or grandparents, whatever you want to call them, they're obsolete and they really don't serve. Correct. A so uh, we, we're just going to write them off, and we're going to pretend they don't exist, and they can come visit on certain days, but we're not going to deal with them, and uh, they're going to go somewhere else. Yeah, yeah, and I think there is a big turn for that. That's what the story was about, and I, I again, I find I think a lot of things that come out of this recession. And the mainstream media just annoys me the way they report it. There's, you and I both know that in planting uh, permanent crops and planting gardens, there is a boom going right now. Like we have not seen since the victory gardens of World War II. But every time the media reports on it, it's because of the recession and it's presented as the poor starving people have to grow their own food instead of Americans have reconnected with this need. When they did this story I'm talking about today about the in-laws moving home, it was kind of positive, but it was really kind of like, well, grandma would be out on the street if it wasn't for this. And the family's saving a lot of money. And it's not that the either side of that's not true. It's that you're ignoring the return to common values. It's almost like they don't want to admit that or something because it's us collectively admitting, you know, 40 years of delusional behavior and going, that was stupid and no one wants to, no one wants to accept the hangover we're dealing with right now as anything other than a hangover. No, and, and you know, uh, that's not politically correct. Um, so we, uh, <laughs> so, you know, and, and you know what, it's actually been a blessing for us. Jack, you have the audience that you do and the support that you do because you're telling the truth and um, it's being ignored in the mainstream media. So it's both a blessing and a curse. It's a shame that our mainstream media is ignoring these situations and really not embracing some of the wonderful things that people are doing in the Garden Homestead movement. But at the same time, that's why we have the niches that we do is because we're just putting out there the common sense, real world as it's happening and what's really going on. And this is revolutionary. And, and, you know, it's shocking to these mainstream people. They want to paint us as kooks or whack jobs, you know, living in mom's basement, you know, make, making this delusional world when we're the ones who are real. When these people, these fashionistas who keep sweaters <laughs> in their oven, they're yeah. the ones who are unrealistic. But because it's New York, they have it right and everyone else is wrong. Oh. I can't stand that. You have been listening a long time. You're, you're giving me throwbacks here to my own stuff. The fashionistas, those people. The, the, I remember that because I remember the one girl. She was a very pretty, powerful-looking young woman. Looked like she was in business and dressed all in black. And she looked like somebody that really had her act together. And her response to why she doesn't worry about having food in her home is because I'm young and single and there's a dinner every night. And I'm like, so your dependency on, you're depending on dating to feed yourself. And it's like, you're, you, everything that you look like you stand for is completely devalued by that statement that that, that your looks and your singleness is how you feed yourself. I just, 
I, I, I feel you, brother. I really do. <laughs> And you, and you know, it, what's, what's funny is, you know, she can probably get by, as they say, on the kindness of strangers for now. Yeah. But, uh, you know, those looks are going to fade, and hopefully yep. she gets, pre- she better get. Oh, no, haven't you seen Nip Talk? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so, you know, instead of doing the maintenance, maintenance on your home, you do the maintenance on your body, right? You know, you have things lifted and talked and, and, and enhanced, and that's what, that's what these folks do now, you know? They, that's where the value is seen in America today. Well, yeah, how many beautiful people does it take to change a light bulb? One, they hold it still and the whole world revolves around them. <laughs> uh, it makes me think of things like, you know, the mind-numbing stupidity of shows like the Cardassians and stuff like that. And and I think that I'm seeing, like, to me, I feel like there's this, like, divide in America where there's, like, this group of people that are just, cl- like, it's getting more and more and more ridiculous with the idolization of stupid behavior. And then there's like a huge portion that are going, I can't take it anymore. I don't want anything to do with this anymore. And I think that's where followings of shows like ours is coming from. The people that have just opted out, they've said flat out, I have had enough and I can't take it anymore. And, and this is probably horrible for me to say, but I really want to throw up in my mouth when I watch network TV anymore. It's so stupid. And they have really made fun of the American family. Uh, people who live within their means are looked down upon because we all need to have a shiny BMW in the driveway, a beautiful family, a country club membership, and we need to have everything now, even though we have nothing in the bank and we're fighting, hand, you know, living foot, hand to mouth. But, uh, that's the real, that's the real way we're supposed to be living. And, uh, you know, I'm just sick of it, Jack. And, you know, you're right. That's why we have an audience is because we're just keeping it real. And what's insane is reality TV is the farthest thing from reality I can freaking imagine. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I was just, uh, I think I was listening to Leno. I, I very rarely listen to him, but his monologues are usually pretty good sometimes. And he was saying that one of the nannies from the Cardassians is coming out with a tell-all book. And he said, what possibly could be left to tell? Isn't there a camera everywhere these people go? And, but, you know, I mean, that's, that's really where we're at with all of this. And I'm glad to see, you know, I feel like a lot of, what I'm seeing around me kind of I helped as a catalyst to start. And I'm seeing all these communities build up with people that just feel the same way. I'm going to take care of my family. I'm going to take care of my home. I'm going to be responsible for myself. And it's like, this feels like really is like, it's supposed to be one of the worst times in history for our country. And other than the fact that the debt scares the ever living shit out of me, I actually think it's like a resurgence of common American values. And maybe it's one of the best things that's ever happened to America because if we would have stayed in this collectional, collected delusionalism, full hardcore, full bore for another five to ten years, and if we would have got away with it for that much longer, I, I think the, the, the bust would have been so much worse. Absolutely true. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And you know what's funny, Jack, is when you did your 500th episode, I believe you uh, recorded calls from all of your listeners. One of I, well, I was one of the voices on that episode, and I said, I'm here because I found a place where there are people like me, and I know I'm not crazy anymore. I felt like a lone voice crying in the wilderness, but, you know, connecting with your show and some of the other shows out there, but especially yours, I feel like I'm not alone, and I've got a support network or a group that I realize, no, they're the crazy ones, it's okay, we're doing the right things, and we're not alone. 
You know, and I think because we are alternative media, Dan, um, I'm starting to feel more and more like this. Like when I started doing this, I didn't know how big it would be. I didn't know how many people were out there that this would resonate with. I just knew I'd had enough and I wanted to tell the truth. And I wanted to tell people what I saw coming and I wanted to help them based on what I knew. And then I started to see it grow and I started to think, well, maybe it is about as big as I see it being right now. More and more what I'm feeling is I hear from new people every day who are just finding shows like yours, shows like mine, shows like Jason Aker's show, uh, Johnny Max of the Queen's Homestead show, all of these shows, and not just the shows, the, the blogs, the Facebook pages, uh, the co- online communities, the forums, and, and again, not even some that are completely, totally divorced from you and I, that what we actually see right now is like the tip of an iceberg. And that there actually are more of us than there are of them. And I, I would say that it's this year is the first time I've begun to feel that way. We're not crazy. We're not alone. <laughs> and, Jack, we are not backing down. No. And you know what? No. We are becoming the real mainstream. Mainstream media is so out there in left field worrying about ridiculous topics that really don't even impact the everyday person. And they're totally missing the checkbook, bread and butter issues of real people in the world and their listeners that, you know what, people are tuning out and said, you know what, I've had enough. These people online, the social media, uh, the new media that we have, our bloggers, our blogosphere, we're talking to people and talking about real things and we're making it relevant. If you asked me 10 years ago, would people turn off the TV and listen to a freaking computer? I'd have said, you're nuts. Go go on medicine now. But guess what? We're the ones who are saying, and because the, we are, our media and our societies become disassociated with real issues, that we are now mainstream. We are the mainstream, and the mainstream is now the fringe. They just haven't realized it yet. Yeah, I completely agree. You know what it makes me think of is what I call the monthly bitch session on Fox News or CNN about Twitter. About once a month, they get all these old gray-haired dudes in suits and a couple younger people that are wearing some Armani's that are their general talking heads, and they get together, and they start whining and crying about kids using shorthand on Twitter and about how these kids are never going to get a job. And I'm thinking, that kid's going to own your company, the, you, the, your old media company someday, that's out there with that shorthand. It's like they completely do not understand the shift that's taken place And it's not going to go backwards. And I think those outlets that we call mainstream media, you, you, they do have a bigger audience today. We do have to still say they are mainstream media for now. But I think they are absolutely dying. And even though they have all these resources and all this money, and they're doing blogs and they're doing podcasts and they're going online and they have Facebook pages, they're not doing it right. They're doing the same crap. They think it's the platform It's not the platform, it's the message being put into the platform. And they haven't figured it out, and I'm like you, I'm grateful they haven't figured it out because I don't have to compete with Fox News right now. I can beat their brains in like a, like a guerrilla warrior, and there's nothing they can do about it until they figure it out. And I figure they've got at least 20 years before they really get it. Maybe this is a cynical thing to say, Jack, so please forgive me if I offend you or my listeners, <laughs> or your listeners, but, um, you know, The reason why we're, what we're doing is working is, and we're telling the truth is because we're not bought and paid for. Correct. Those people have agendas, they have sponsors, and having lived in Washington D.C. and Alexandria, Virginia, inside the Beltway, I can tell you that those people are beholding to other people. It's an inbred, incestuous relationship between media and power in yeah. Washington, and they can't get their rear you know their heads out of their rear ends and they don't know what's really going on there really is a tunnel vision when you're inside the beltway where you really don't understand and 
for the most part, you don't really care what the unwashed masses, the inferior flyover people in the middle of the country think because you are the elite, effete, you know, uh, super people and you really, you really don't get it. There's a disconnect. And that's a reason why when people go to Washington, they turn into complete ass clowns, to use one of your phrases. Yeah, it's absolutely. because they don't get it. They lose what it was that sent them there and they lose touch with real people. And their media, and the media just is part of that. It's part of the problem now. They're, they are no longer an independent entity reporting on what's going there. I mean, you see people like Andrew Mitchell, who's she married to? Alan Greenspan, head of the, sure. ex-head of the Fed. Sure. I mean, you know, they're inbred. They go to the same parties and do the same things. Yeah. They're the same. Yeah, I agree. And I, you know, I, I think about like the independence that you have is so liberating in this space. Occasionally I get emails from people that don't like me, shocking as it might be. And occasionally I get one that's really kind of a complete, total asshole, tur- you know, uh, angled email. Just the person just being a jerk and calling me names or something. And I'll basically email them back and tell them to go F themselves in maybe direct terminology. And I'll usually get a response back expecting that I would have been thankful for their help in pointing out my inadequacies. And I should appreciate that. And I guess that maybe I've gotten too big now and I'm soaking up my own success and I don't appreciate people and I'm only telling them to go screw it. I'm like, well, you haven't been listening very long because I've been telling people to screw off since day one. And, and that's what you get with us. You get honesty. And if you're if you're a jerk, I'll tell you you're a jerk. If I misunderstood you, I'll tell you I'm sorry. But I'm not going to polish things to make you feel good. I'm going to give you the truth as I know it and as I see it. And that does not exist on TV and radio today. It absolutely does not exist because you're right. Under the current system, it cannot exist. So I, I know I brought you on here to talk about houses and DIY, and you, we've done a great job. But I, I'm glad we had this kind of little exchange at the end because I think it's a very forward-looking thing. And I, I think you're probably like me. You're not worried about competition. You want as many people doing this as possible. We need to grow this space. You know, they say a rising tide floats all boats. I think there's room for plenty of boats. Absolutely. And to take the metaphor just in a different direction, when you think about a church, I'm not worried about stealing people from another church. There are plenty of souls to save, and that's what our mission is, brother. We're preaching the gospel, and there are plenty of souls we still need to save. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot of people that need to be saved from their own self-destructive behavior, and they've been conditioned by society to do it. So, hey, man, I've loved having you on today. Um, it, it's morphed into something I didn't expect, but I'm very, very pleased with. Uh, so thanks for joining us today. But even though you've mentioned your podcast and your show a few times, well, how, pe- how can people find them? Okay, go to hdivs.com. That's my website. Um, and uh, I'm also on Twitter and Facebook. On Twitter, it's at hdivs. And Facebook, just once again, search Homestead and Dividends. And on iTunes, same thing, search Homestead and Dividends, and you'll see my icon come up. My old one's there, but my new icon has a large H and a D with a bunch of green vines on it. And click on it and subscribe, and uh, give me a listen. I I hope to uh, give you guys some great content. And I'll put links to all of those resources in today's show notes. And again, hey, Dan, thanks for joining us today on the Survival Podcast. It's been a pleasure, and thanks to you and your audience uh, for all that that you do and uh, for supporting me, and God bless. Hey, man, again, thanks for being here. And, folks, with that, today this has been Jack Spirico along with Dan Famos of uh, Homestead Dividends, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's 
the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Yeah.